If you love what you hear, check out our authors Andrea Stewart and N.A. Fulton on Amazon.com, and be sure to subscribe to our Dark Romance Novels and Stories podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite podcast provider. Learn more about us at audioiron.com. Pirate's Desire by Andrea Stewart. Chapter 12. Corwin regarded Port Royal with a mixture of fear and elation. As the wraith entered the deep bowl-shaped harbour her eyes scanned the verdant hills that towered on either side of the narrow entry. When she examined the Spanish battery that had guarded this bay for a hundred years, she could just make out that two long rows of artillery were focused on the narrow passage. They were positioned to destroy any unwelcome vessels. The city flowed away from the water and up onto the hillside. Narrow winding streets ran from the busy wharves through the one- and two-story plastered buildings, to the less dense, more varied houses scattered on the perimeter of the town in all directions. It was easy to understand, she decided, why this bastion of villainy had survived so long. The harbour could not be breached by even the largest warships. Cannons would blow attackers apart as they filed into the bay. Foliage so dense that it appeared to occupy every free inch of space would deter any army that tried to march across the island. From where Corwin stood amidships she could see nearly fifty vessels in the cove, some bobbing near the dock while others were floating in deeper water. Many of the ships flew colours, some from Holland, a few from France and there were other flags Corwin couldn't even begin to guess at. But, there were no English ships to be seen. She had been very naive to be hopeful some such vessels might be found here. Though Black had anchored the wraith some distance from land, Corwin could make out hundreds of men scurrying along the shore and wharves like brightly coloured ants. Each ship had cargo to be discharged, new supplies to be loaded, and while vessels were in port crews could make repairs. Corwin made her decision and turned to leave the deck. She had to escape, and Port Royal might prove her only opportunity. Once free of Black she would be able to find her own way to her brother in Virginia. She knew she was taking a great risk. But now she knew she could not trust Black to protect her. Who knew what he might say or do at any moment? He cared nothing for her and felt no remorse at all for how he had harmed her. She would have to make her way on her own. In the overheated cabin, she explored the cupboards surrounding the bunk she shared with Black. When she found a knife, she made short work of sawing off her long hair. She dropped the sea of dark locks onto the floor without a flicker of regret. Grabbing a handful of the wide linen bandages, she pulled off her shirt and bound her breasts flat. If she could pass for a boy for just a few days she would certainly be able to find a vessel heading to the colonies. She could appeal to the ship's captain to help her and promise him a significant reward if he did. Black entered the cabin just as Corwin was buttoning her shirt back up. He had known when she left the deck what he would find here. Her body had grown used to his but her spirit was not broken and she did not trust him. And why should she? He had used her and abused her since their very first meeting. He had dragged her to this devil's den on the far side of the world, 
and now he refused to take her home or to her brother. He studied her and said, I do not know that you could ever have passed for a boy, but you certainly will never do so in the future. Cutting your hair and tying yourself up served no purpose. As we have already discussed I will be putting you in the hands of a man who can arrange your transport home. It may take weeks for him to book your passage. It might take months to find a suitable ship. But you will be returned to England unharmed. When she raised her eyes to his, her age and humiliation were apparent. I know you have little reason to trust me, but I vow you will be safe and well taken care of my lady. You care so little for me that you are discarding me here on the edge of the world. You want me to believe that whatever stranger you hand me over to will not use me exactly as you have. I suppose the notion of using others must be quite familiar to you. Your brother used me to pull you away from Norfolk while he spoke to someone else. You led me outside to hide from Norfolk and thereafter he waged relentless war upon me. You used me to kill Norfolk to save your brother's life. Corwin stared at him. But, my lady, I do not wish to see you used by anyone. I no longer wish to punish you. But I will not allow you to use me and my crew to carry you home when there are others who may do the job just as well. Thus today we must part ways. I meant you no harm in anything I did. But I was so greatly harmed my lady. Whether you destroy a man from carelessness, ignorance, or evil intent matters little to someone who has lost all. He moved forward, picked up one of the long soft strips of fabric and said. Give me your hands. I will not. You cannot leave me here. Corwin's heart stopped and she moved her hands behind her back. Had it so quickly come to this? Do not make me force you to comply. Said Black shaking his head wearily. We already know how the battle will end. How can you do this to me? Please take me to my brother. You have this great ship and this fine crew. It is a few weeks voyage. Is it really so much to ask? Black reached for her shirt, pulled her to her feet, and captured one of her wrists. Spinning her around he caught the other and deftly tied them both behind her. It is far too much to ask my lady. He said when the operation was complete. Something inside him, perhaps it was his heart, was turning to iron. He did not want to send her away. He could not imagine an existence without her. But he had to build a new life in a new world and it was a journey too brutal for her to survive. She needed to go home to her bucolic estate, the people who loved her the garden parties and the sacrament on Sunday. Placing one hand on her shoulder he guided the girl from the cabin. Once on deck, he handed her over to his crew, glad he didn't have to look at her or speak to her for a moment. He pretended to be unaware of the Maros faces and pitying looks that surrounded them. He was well aware she had a ship full of champions now. This was yet another reason she had to go. This episode would just about ensure he was painted blacker than any pirate since Blackbeard in their minds. To them it would be apparent he had taken her on the high seas and used her for weeks. Now he was removing her from the ship as a prisoner. Even Andre, whose demand had forced this decision upon him, was regarding the girl with pity. Black ordered his men to lower Corwin over the side in a small dinghy. Moments later he and two crewmen joined her in the small boat. He sat silently beside her on the rear bench and the two men took the forward seats and began rowing the boat to shore. On the long way to the pier that jutted out into the harbour, Corwin rubbed the bandages and twining her wrists against a short iron bar that thrust against her spine. Though the metal was anything but sharp, the cloth ripped enough to leave her hands free. Biding her time she held the makeshift bindings about her wrists as though she were still tied up. She waited until the boat bumped against the long wharf. She watched Black climb the rope ladder to the wooden planking, 
then made no fuss as they lifted her to the deck. She lowered her head as if resigned to her fate and moved to stand just behind Devon. She waited until he leaned over the side of the wharf to call an order to the oarsman and then she used her foot to shove him hard toward the water. To her consternation, he did not tumble off the pier as she had hoped. Nevertheless Corwin darted down the long wharf toward the narrow buildings that lined the shore, dodging ropes, nets and crewmen from other vessels as she ran. She felt free for a long moment, but a sudden tackle from behind brought her crashing headlong into the rough planks. For a moment all was dark, and when she recovered her wits she found she had been dragged to her feet. Devon Black was only slightly winded from their race. A commendable effort. Black said as he brushed the dirt from her face and clothes. It was, however, as unsuccessful as every other escape you have ever attempted. Let us see if we can travel the next half mile without any excitement, shall we? Taking up a short length of rope from the deck, he fastened her hands behind her back again. When she sullenly refused to walk, Devon sighed and threw her over his shoulder like a sack of meal. He strode off the pier and up into the narrow alleys and long streets heading toward the expensive homes that were high on the hill. He paraded Corwin breathless and bruised, bottom in the air, past saloons filled with roaring men, and whorehouses where women hiked up their skirts and flaunted their breasts in search of commerce. Eventually they arrived at a tall metal gate in a high pink wall. Black rang a big bell mounted outside and a caramel-colored young man dressed in bright yellow livery let them in. The servant led them across yellow flagstones through a tropical garden to the front door of a two-story house that would have looked quite at home in London's Mayfair district. The servant let them into the house through the wide white front door, and without ceremony Devon set Corwin on her feet. Overwhelmed by shock and the long dizzying walk they had just undertaken, she collapsed onto the floor. Devon didn't spare her a glance as he offered his hand to the elegant dark-skinned man who approached them through an open study door. Corwin struggled fiercely in the arms of a servant that had been brought in to control her. She remained in the hall where she had been dropped. Her attempts to exit through the front door had been forestalled by the servant in yellow livery. Now a shirtless young man in breeches and bare feet called in from the kitchen held her. As she stared through the open door, she watched Black negotiate her fate. She could not hear his words across the great distance of white marble floor, but it was clear she was being sold. Black was apparently at ease in a delicately made cherrywood chair. It was positioned in front of a highly polished, darkwood desk, that sparkled with gold filigree. On the other side of the deep brown expanse, her buyer spoke with some animation, glancing at her from time to time as if he doubted her value. She should never have trusted Black, Corwin realized. She should have fought him every minute of every day. She should have forced him to kill her aboard his wretched ship. He had turned her into his willing whore. She had debased herself. How stupid she had been to let down her guard. Next time they met, by God, she would see him beg the hangman for his life. She is obstinate, conniving, and vicious. Said Black. He examined the lit cigar Andre had provided him and tried to ignore the struggles of servant and girl that broke out periodically behind him. It will be a struggle to hold on to her until you can send her home. Such a strange task you have brought me Capitan responded Andre. His voice betrayed his French, Spanish, and native antecedents. It was men like Andre who were swiftly becoming the leaders of the colonial world because they considered it home. Not just a territory to conquer and remake, but a rich land with a glorious future to build. You have expended a great deal over for two captors, this creature, and now you leave it to me to set off free? 
That's a curious thing for a good businessman to do. Would you not rather a tenor, or seller, or give her away as a gift? I simply wish her put on a good ship bound for England. Said Black. He wished the intelligent, over-curious half-breed would leave off asking questions and turn his mind to the matter at hand. I simply want her to be delivered safely to Portsmouth or Land's End. She seems an attractive woman, beneath the dirt and despite the salvaged hair. She is a treasure it seems ridiculous to discare. I believe I have made myself quite clear. Said Devon. But Andre carried on. It is well known you have no taste for human tread, Captain. However, she seems to be an entirely different matter. Said Andre. She can't hardly be expected to be accepted in England now. Perhaps Fortuna's brought her because she is one of us. Why should she not make a new Futuria with you and so many as us? Get her home unmolested on the next ship. Said Black doggedly. Have you told O.U.S. ending Uram? Why does a young girl fight so when she is to be returned to her family? Andre was clearly mystified as he watched Corwin fight to free herself from the arms of his young servant. I have told her I am returning her to England. She believes nothing I say. How much more do you need to know to accept this commission? It may be that if she returns to her own land, you cannot return. Do you not have land in England? Are you surrendering everything just to send her on? Will you accept my commission as I have given it to you? Why not just keep her? Andre asked. This smells to me a mistake. I will help you, but this is something that should not be done. She does not wish to go where you are sending her. Turn and see what is there before you my captain. Why for the love of God do you give that young lady up? Black Rose, looked down on Andre and made no attempt to hide his annoyance. After a decade of profit and what passed for friendship in this part of the world, he might have expected something more than unbridled curiosity and intrusion into his private affairs. I apologize for the inconvenience. When next we meet I'll give you a hundred pounds to cover the cost of making all her arrangements. Black looked out the long windows at the late afternoon sun. He wanted to be shut of the girl much as a man who has to lose a leg wants the business over as soon as possible. There is no need to pay for such a thing. Here you money as it is. Andre reached into his desk and pulled out a purse heavy with coin. He placed it on the desk and Black took it up. Andre rose and followed him out of the room, across the entry hall, and to the front door. Black refused to look at Corwin as he left the house, certain he would not be able to let her go if their eyes met. Corwin saw the door close behind Devon in horror. She would not have believed it unless she had seen it with her own eyes. He had said not a word to her after all she had endured. Everything she had ever believed about him, every kind thought, had been in error. He had sold her like an animal. The dark-skinned man approached her and the servant holding her twisted her hand up between her shoulder blades to make her hold still. You have so manos to learn and appetite. Your capitan has sworn me to treat you kindly. Why do you misbehave so? Andre nodded at the servant, silently ordering him to let her speak. As soon as she could talk, Corwin spat epithets at him in French to be sure he understood her slurs. After a moment he placed a scented hand over both her mouth and nose, stopping her breath entirely. When she struggled, tried to scream, he shook his head. Be silent. I have not the patience for this game. When she stilled, eyes frantic, he spoke again. Now, do you like to breeze, little one? At her hysterical nod, he went on. When he let you breeze you will be civil. No more bad language or bad words. Corwin nodded her acquiescence and his hand fell away. She stared straight ahead, mastering her fury. There was no point in angering this Frenchman. 
let him do whatever he pleased, she would escape at the first opportunity. This was dry land not a ship lost at sea. She waited impatiently as his cinnamon eyes examined the scratches on her cheek which had come when she had tried to escape on the wharf. His touch was impersonal, almost professional, when he pushed the hair away from her eyes. Then moments later his hands took the measure of her hip and waist. Corwin stared at the floor and the blood rushed to her cheeks. Was there no indignity she might be spared? Very good. He said, tilting Corwin's head back so she had to look at him. You need a bath, some fresh clothing, and some food. Corwin said nothing. You will allow me to give you a maid to help you wash. Corwin nodded and allowed her body to relax. I would very much like a bath. She said carefully. With a nod he made the slave release her. Follow Dmitrius to your room. A maid will be alone shortly to help you get clean and fix your hair. Thank you. Said Corwin, but the man had dismissed her already, returning to his desk as if she were a matter fully decided. And why not? She was yet another piece of property he owned. She followed his servant out of the room and up the carpeted stairs to a room at the far end of a hall. The young man, Demetrius, opened the door for her, eyes narrowed as if he did not trust her sudden change in manner. He closed the door and she heard him lock it behind her. Corwin barely had time to examine the elegant room, done in pale blue and white before she stood at one of its windows. To her satisfaction it overlooked the long roof overhanging a garden veranda. She swiftly saw a web of branches that would carry her all the way to a point outside the manor wall. Trying the window, she found it opened easily, obviously a credit to the carpenter who had crafted it. In a moment she was through, feet unsteady upon the rocking red tiles as she crept to the tree, then she followed branches to reach the two-story drop over the narrow muddy street. She let herself hang down from the branch, dangling at least ten feet above the lane. Then, for a moment Corwin's courage failed her. What if she broke her leg, or even her neck in the fall? But, thinking of all she had endured so far, she let go. Her landing was as painful as she might have expected, and for a moment Corwin could not move. She was sure she would never breathe again. When she recovered her senses the knowledge of her regained liberty helped her stagger to her feet. She had to move, had to start running. Before she could decide which way to turn, she heard voices at the window above. In a moment the sound of tiles slipping against one another came from the rooftop. Corwin darted away. She heard the impact of a man dropping to the ground behind her, and desperation coursed through her veins. She raced forward turning at the first corner she came to. She found herself on a much wider street. Two women, only half-dressed in the filthy clothes they wore, pointed at her as she sprinted past them. Down another avenue, longer than the last, with even more people to navigate. She passed by stalls, carts, they were multiplying, crowding against one another. Now Corwin could barely hear the steps of the man chasing her, she was gaining ground. More turns followed and Corwin emerged into a crowded market square. Simple canopies of dyed canvas and a hundred carts and stalls divided the area into long alleys. People of all races jostled one another, buying fruit, fish, meat, bread, and more exotic food. Some rummaged through bins of clothing dishes, and more personal possessions, apparently unconcerned by the probable origin of such property. Unwashed bodies, horse dung, strange spices filled the squared with a miasma of noxious fumes. Corwin shoved her way through the crowd, sometimes ducking down to dart through a stall rather than going around. Sellers cursed her when she jostled their goods or their customers but she kept her head and ignored them. 
A corner of the market had been set aside as an auction block, and she knelt on the ground at the back of the crowd, wondering where she could hide. She saw a cow auctioned off in a matter of moments, then a child. The next time she glanced at the block she saw a woman, white-skinned with black hair, struggling with the auctioneer. The woman was dressed in rags that might once have been fine clothes. Her face was badly bruised. When the auctioneer lifted her skirts to show her sex, Corwin turned away. Along the far edge of the square, past the auction crowd, she saw carriages waiting. She darted between a ring of stalls and the auction block crowd and made for the most attractive one. It was a red carriage with gold piping, and the largest of the few stationed here. She slipped inside. She sat on the floor of the coach, her back against the door, and prayed that her pursuers would give up before the owner of this conveyance wanted to go home. As she caught her breath and her heart stopped pounding, she let herself think of Devon Black. How angry he would be when the dark man wanted his money back. Devon had tried to cage her over and over again, but at last she had finally escaped. She was free now and one day she vowed she would see him in chains. She closed her eyes and began to give thanks that her long nightmare was over. Pirate's Desire by Andrea Stewart. Voice recording copyright 2020 by Nancy Fulton. All rights reserved. Music by Alexander Schweif licensed from Pond 5.